This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. 79-year-old Ernest Quintana, seriously ill with lung disease, was hospitalized at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in California. His family went for a break and left him with his granddaughter, Annalisa Wilharm, who took this heartbreaking video posted by the Mercury News. Step is going to hospice at home. Right? You know, I don't know if he's going to get home. Okay. The bearer of the bad news was a doctor, but not exactly. As she described it to the New York Times, a tow machine on wheels rolled into the room. Attached to it was a screen streaming a live video of a doctor far away who gave her the grim news that her grandfather would probably not last much longer. This is one example of how telemedicine can go bad. But it's not even the worst. That is the subject of this episode of Lex Kibernetica. And let's go straight to our first guest. Hi, my name is Ron Shamir. I'm a researcher here in the Federman Cyber Research Center in the university. I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Phonetica. Phonetica is a startup in the digital medical domain. Previous to that, I served in the Israeli Security Agency for more than 20 years. In my last position, I was the head of the technological division. How would you define uh, smart medicine? So we want to add uh, technology to medicine, especially we want to add computers and big data analytics to medicine. So for example, in uh, Maccabi, the second biggest HMO here in Israel, They took all the information about blood tests that the population here did, and they found an interesting correlation between cancer and the results of those uh, testings. So now they can call people at home and ask them to come in and have a pre-check to find out if they have early stage of cancer. And that's only because we could take a huge amount of data, big data, and analyze it and find this correlation between cancer and certain results in blood. A whole different uh, area is, uh, for example, in the MRI area. Now we can see actually inside the brain in ways that we never thought we can. And uh, another area that I'm dealing with is trying to take voice samples from patients and trying to find a correlation in the voice with the certain pathologies. So, for example, we found out that there is a good correlation between some attributes of the voice with a, a disease called atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is a heart rhythm problem, and it's important to know that you have one. And uh, there are people that are asymptomatics, so they don't know they have this problem. So, we can do a mass screening of the population and alert people, give them an early alert that they have Atrial fibrillation. This information is in the open. Uh, I can test people's voices on uh, social media, on YouTube, diagnose them and have information about their health that they did not authorize me to, to have. So we see two main uh, domains of vulnerabilities. One aspect is the IT aspect. So we talked about big data in medicine and you know that uh, the medical record these days is a highly valuability darknet, so people want to buy other people's medical record and do things with it. 
And it's actually more valuable than social security numbers or uh, credit cards. Right. This is the most valuable information now on the net. And we can see that there are two main differences. For example, a credit card number, you can cancel the card. You can't cancel your medical record. And with the medical record, you can do things such as sell it to a lot of maybe insurance company, but also others that want to manipulate it or they want to investigate it or want to do or blackmail you and other bad ideas. So the one big issue is the medical IT issue. The problems here are more or less the problems that we know from every IT installation. But what we found is that the medical sector wasn't aware enough. So you could see that medical records were stolen from big hospitals, big HMOs all over the world, and the big damage was done. And the other factor is the medical devices themselves. So if you have a lot of medical devices in the hospital and clinics, for example, an MRI machine or a heart pump or whatever, uh, today, most of them contains a kind of a computer. It might be a small computer. Many times it is connected to the hospital networks. And this can uh, be an, an attack vector. So if the attacker gets full control of the device, for example, if it's an MRI machine, he can manipulate the information that goes from the machine to the doctor and get wrong results from the MRI test for that patient. Another example is if you have some kind of a sensor, for example, a sensor that makes sure that the heart is beating in the right pace, and you manipulate the information and the nurse in the nurse station can't see the right result, the patient might die. There's also the problem of medical devices embedded in people. Yeah, we have the pacemakers. There's a famous story about the U.S. vice president that had a, a pacemaker. And you can take control of this pacemaker if the designer of that piece of uh, hardware and software didn't pay enough attention to securing it. The Showtime hit Homeland ended last season with an assassination plot that seemed far-fetched. His pacemaker can be wirelessly accessed. The vice president forced into cardiac arrest when his pacemaker was hacked. I, I knew that uh, it was a, an accurate portrayal of what was possible. Cheney had the device implanted in 2007. Doctors disabled the wireless feature out of fear that someone, a terrorist perhaps, could manipulate it and disrupt his heartbeat. And uh, I'm afraid that the early versions of this machine weren't secure enough. If I have a pacemaker or uh, an insulin pump embedded in me, should I be afraid? Yes, you should. And you should be aware. For example, at the, the case of insulin pump, usually those devices stay with us for a long period of time. We don't replace them as we replace a smartphone. And the other problem is that the manufacturer can't really do software patches to the computer in the pump. You can't patch your, your software in isolin pump or any other medical devices once it's in the hospital or being used. And the reason is that when it brought first time to the market, the FDA gave clearance to it. The regulation, the FDA said it's okay to use it. So you can't make any changes to it once it's in use. So ironically, the FDA caused a situation where even if you wanted to update the software to make it safer, you couldn't because then you would be vi in violation. Yeah, in a way, in a way. So this, this is the reason that most medical devices aren't being patched and they're being used for a long period of time. So if someone finds a vulnerability, what happens all the time, for example, in Windows, and, Windows, and Microsoft always fixes 
almost every day fixes vulnerabilities in Windows, you can't do the same in medical devices. So they are vulnerable. They are exposed to a misuse of the vulnerabilities by an attacker. And this should be of a concern for the people who use these devices. And the FDA has no solution for this? The FDA is looking into it and they have a first a white paper about the subject. There isn't a strict regulation of the FDA yet for medical devices, but I believe it's on the way. As you said, you were a technology division head with the Israeli security agency, Shabak. Should we fear adversaries and terrorists taking advantage of smart medicine vulnerabilities to assassinate leaders, kill citizens, or just um, wreak havoc and chaos on our medical systems? I must say that I'm quite surprised that we didn't see that yet. I thought two years ago, three years ago, that we are about to see that, and we didn't. So I'm a bit surprised about that. I believe that it's not that hard. And when they have the opportunity, they'll do that. Lon Shamir, thank you very much. Thank you. Medical information is one of the more coveted um, kinds of information. It can tell you a lot about a person and what you can sell that person and also develop drugs and uh, sell them to that person. How is that information protected now that everything is digitized and shared and available? My name is Dr. Rachel Hendricks-Sturup, and I am Health Policy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. I uh, delve deeply into matters concerning privacy and security around uh, genetic health information and also digital health information. Um, I also uh, do research on Uh, what's required for the successful implementation of uh, genetics into uh, medical practice. Uh, before coming on board with the Future of Privacy Forum, I completed my research fellowship at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute and Harvard Medical School. Um, there, I did lots of work in this space as well, and uh, it was essentially the perfect segue into my role at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, how is medical information collected about us uh, nowadays? Um, that's a great question. It really depends on what country you live in, but essentially the major players who um, in a traditional sense are collecting health information are um, insurers, uh, health care providers. And um, with that being said, we're seeing an emergence of non-traditional uh, entities that are generating and also collecting health information like direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, uh, consumer wearable companies, some of the major players that we see um, In advertisements or in the news, for example, as what we see as a recent concerning controversy are uh, Fitbit, um, 23andMe, uh, Ancestry, those kinds of companies that are now launching health products or that are engaging with health researchers to advance medicine. So they're advancing medicine, but they're also in it for the profit. And they might use the information about us directly concerning us, um, like uh, offer us a specific uh, medicine or equipment or... Uh, knowing what our uh, medical uh, uh, status is, uh, make offers that are relevant. How do we keep those companies from misusing the data that they have on us? That is a, a very um, good point. Um, we are seeing these entities um, collect information and use it in ways that might go beyond the scope of the original intent. There are some laws in place that protect individuals from the misuse of this data or from the selling of that data, um, if you will. I know the California Consumer Privacy Act um, has introduced a, a do not sell 
mechanism for consumers to um, essentially tell companies like the ones we've, we're discussing now to not sell their information. Um, although the GDPR, um, it does not do that, or at least it doesn't have that uh, provision that gives that option to consumers in the EU. But um, nonetheless, I think um, what we're what we're starting to see is again um, non-traditional entities engaging in health, and for that reason, I think they are taking it upon themselves to collaborate with uh, healthcare providers to become business associates. Um, so that way, they do um, fall under the obligations of HIPAA, for example, here in the United States, which is the core patient privacy law that protects patients from uh, unauthorized access to that patient's health information by specifically unauthorized entities that are that do not fall under uh, HIPAA um, or that are not HIPAA covered, if you will. So I think um, we're starting to see a lot of the onus being placed on these companies to come up with uh, or adhere to um, what experts might perceive as best practices for the secure generation, exchange and use and selling of uh, health information when it's generated and collected by those companies. But there are also uninvited users, hackers who can hack uh, databases containing medical information or <laughs> use different technologies to collect medical information about us, such as looking into videos of us and for example by the movement the tiny movements of the head know what our uh, pulse is or with thermal uh, photography uh, seeing a heat map of our body are there good ways to to protect yourself against the collection of information by those uh, elements so really it depends on who bears the responsibility of understanding how the data uh, or when the data is collected and used. Um, for example, um, we are seeing a lot of the facial recognition technology tools being used out there in social media for entertainment purposes, where individuals might key in their contact information to be able to use that technology to post on social media what their ancestry is. For example, a facial recognition technology might say, give us your email and name and birthday, and we can um, use allow you to use our facial recognition technology and we'll give you a report of what your ancestry might be based on how we measure um, various angles of your face. Um, so how that data is being used and collected by those companies when they offer that service for entertainment purposes, um, I, I'm not sure whether or not um, the users are actually reading and comprehending the terms of use agreements um, around that. And also it remains to be clarified as to whether or not the companies themselves are um, being a very transparent to the users about what they're doing with the data and then b whether or not their practices are uh, prominent in terms of use agreements for users to be able to uh, see them and also understand them um, when that information is in front of them now with regard to hackers i think um, it goes back again to who is responsible for ensuring the cybersecurity over health information um, so entities, I believe, bear the responsibility ensuring that the information that they collect is secure, uh, encrypted, and also um, they should engage in regular auditing procedures to uh, determine whether or not their cybersecurity protocols are still effective um, and can still uphold the highest privacy standards for patients and then also to remain in compliance with laws that cover the generation and use and processing of that health information. 
We've seen recently an article in the LA Times about DNA databases that are called a goldmine for police, but with few rules and little transparency. There are commercial companies that offer DNA sequencing, and there are also databases that people upload their results to and share them with the world. And police forces and, and, and law enforcement use those databases, the commercial ones and the independent ones, to mm-hmm. uh, investigate crime. Um, what rights do we have regarding our genetic information? That's a great question, considering the law enforcement use um, and their access to genetic uh, information. Um, it's that space in general is becoming a wild west or what they uh, coin as a lawless land. Um, so when law enforcement, when they are looking to obtain direct-to-consumer genetic testing data um, for individuals or um, for a specific individual or for many individuals, they um, can approach the company uh, itself and then they would have to follow the um the guidelines of that company to gain access to the genetic information that the company houses. They have to have a warrant or a subpoena, and then it's up to the company to determine whether or not, based on the information that they're presented with, whether or not they will give law enforcement access to that information. Now, those companies do have transparency reports around that on their website, so that way anyone from the public can take a look and see how many warrants or subpoenas they received, how many were fulfilled, how many were not fulfilled, and then also I think it's also important for the companies to explain whether or not the individuals were notified when law enforcement presented to the companies to get access to genetic information for that specific individual. Now, also, those individuals being consumers themselves, they can download their data from the direct-to-consumer genetic testing company website through their consumer account. They can download that data, upload it to public genealogy databases, And then from there, identify relatives, uh, biological relatives that they may or may not know. So what law enforcement has done is that they have taken to these public genealogy databases, um, seeing them as, you know, accessible um, and available databases to compare data from crime scenes or genetic data they collect from crime scenes to genetic data in the databases to determine familial matches or essentially what is considered biological relatives to suspects from crime scenes. It's not even having your own information on the database. If, if a relative of yours is on the database, uh, your privacy might be uh, uh, jeopardized. Absolutely. So um, in order to generate leads, law enforcement can see who is related to a suspect from a crime scene. Now, whether or not they contact the relatives of that individual that is a suspect, that has yet to be completely revealed, or at least I have yet to see stories of individuals who have stepped forth to say law enforcement contacted me after they determined that I was related to a suspect from a crime scene. Those stories have yet to be out there, and I think that um, once those kinds of stories um, become more prominent in the media, then we will truly understand the impact of law enforcement access to uh, genetic information of individuals who could be biologically related to suspects. And that could be a biological relation that is known or unknown. Dr. Rachel Hendricks Starup, thank you very much. And as they say in Hebrew, la brut. La brut. <laughs> thank you very much.
Medical security or Medisec is one of the issues that states have to deal with in order to keep uh, the citizens safe. We will talk about this with our uh, next guest. My name is Danit Leibovitch-Shati. I'm from the INCD, Israeli National Cyber Directorate. We are looking at uh, technology-enabled care, which is called tech, TEC. So let's start with the medical uh, tech uh, industry itself. What does the future, uh, near future, look like? Prediction says that in 10 years, we will have approximately up to 50 billion uh, devices, IoT devices, which means that uh, there are devices that are connected to, uh, to the network or to other devices. In medical security, we are looking at 35 billion from those uh, 50. 35 billion, both embedded in humans and used on humans. Well, we call it from blood to cloud. Well, uh, we're talking about sensors that will be embedded in the human body. You can see uh, pacemakers even today that by surgery are installed in the human body. And those devices are connected to the network, to the medical uh, staff. But we're looking at biosensors and nanosensors. We can see even today new developments of pills that uh, can send signals to the physicians or the doctor that is treating patients. So for them to learn when the patient took the pill, uh, we can see it in psychiatric care. Uh, we can see in diabetics, uh, there are new developments for pills that are swollen and they can release the insulin uh, much slower. And the patient and their doctor can see what amount of insulin is being inserted to the patient. So we are talking about embedded sensors. You said we're looking into it right now, but isn't that a bit too late? We've already seen heart pumps and insulin pumps hacked in uh, hacker conventions. This is not a potential danger. It's an actual risk to people's lives right now. Well, you're absolutely correct, and I'm part of the team that is looking to the future because the wave of medical devices is coming, and it's going to be huge, and it's going to be affecting everything and everywhere in the medical field. But we can see it even today. We can see the devices that are being hacked, and we can use the knowledge that we have today and the forecasts that we have for the future and combine them. And this is our goal. We are looking at helping the medical sector today. The INCD has operations to help the hospitals and uh, clinics to better defend themselves today and in the near future. Uh, we are investing in academic studies and, uh, and laboratories to study today and help bring the best researchers to Israel. Our goal is to look into the future. This is what my team does. And we are looking to see how the future can affect us today. It's true that the life cycle in the medical field is approximately between five to 10 years, which means that if we start today working with the manufacturers, working with the regulators, we can affect what's going to happen in five or 10 years. But it's better to start now and not later. And we are trying to strengthen uh, the security as of today, but we must look at the future. When we look into the future of um, Meditech and Medisec, what do we see? Well, we see that robots will have much more influence in the future. In telemedicine and telerobotics, which is far care, 
the doctor will be in one place and the patient will be kilometers away and the surgery will be performed by robot and there are robotic surgeries where the robot will in the future be able to perform the operation by itself hospital which is the home care and monitoring devices they are all coming in the future and we can see them today but they have among them a lot of security risks Connected medical devices are in some way similar to computers. They have CPU, they have memory storage, and they have a battery. The big difference is on their size. They are very, very small, which means that if you need a battery to last for 10 years on a pacemaker, you can't force it to have security measures if it's used for a medical care. It won't have enough battery. It won't have enough CPU. And therefore, it's very hard to secure those devices. And we are looking at the large ecosystem. We are looking at it from a national point of view to see how we can combine every part of this chain to take under consideration the medical care and the security measures needed. It seems like medical devices have to be Um, perfect before they're implanted or used on the human. But we do know that there's no system that is foolproof and that we'll always find um, breaches in existing systems. So what do we do, for example, if we find a breach in a pacemaker? We can't take it out of the body to fix it. We have to send a patch. Exactly. This is part of the consequences made for the, this long life cycle. will take years until we see the developments embedded in the hospitals and in the medical care and we're looking into that because breaches will be there always and we are trying to capsule them we are trying to find how we can have one breach but it won't affect others in case of the pacemaker there was a large recall in 2016 for pacemakers approximately half a million pacemakers were recalled by the FDA to fix a component which is transmitting between the doctor and the patient Did they actually remove all those pacemakers from the patients? No. In the same way that the doctor can alter the adjustments of the pacemaker inside the patient, in that way they can uh, fix the problem or in that specific uh, case, uh, close it totally. So there won't be any more uh, wireless connection uh, in that matter. But it's one way to have the technological solution. It's another thing to bring half a million people to their clinics to make the recall. And this is another issue. And if we are looking at it from a national point of view, we are trying to look at it as an ecosystem, as a part of a chain, which the patient is one uh, central piece. Patients will have more control on their medical care. They'll have more knowledge. They can monitor themselves. They, they will be able to... to learn how their body reacts to specific changes. And they are part, a very important part of the chain. So if you hear about a recall, for your own safety, you must go to the clinic and have the patch. Upgrade your system and we'll see it more and more in the future. What will cybersecure hospitals look like? Well, in the future, we are looking at hospitals that will be able to To capsule or we call it the technological terms segment each device will have its own segment so 
when in breach or when hacked, it won't hack the whole systems of the hospitals. We have medical records, we have test results, we have imaging results. Hospitals have a lot of sensitive medical data and we need to protect it and we need to protect the devices and we need to protect their integrity. And we are building a security model which will help hospitals better their processes and their procedures so they will be more secured so any change that we are looking at to, to better secure the hospitals or better secure the procedures are being with full collaboration and cooperation with hospitals with doctors with the manufacturers with the Ministry of Health because we want to enable the care we want to help them use the technology and keep the citizens safe. So doctors and medical personnel will have to learn a bit of cybersecurity on top of their uh, medical studies. Well, my first reaction is absolutely. As much as we all have to learn cybersecurity because we are going to be living in a world which is full of technology and we will be dependent on them. So we must embed security in our procedures, in our understanding, in how we look at the world. So yes, they'll have to learn cybersecurity, but not the technological aspects of cybersecurity, the procedural. They'll have to learn that if they're using their own cellular phone and uploading an app on their cellular phone, they are risking the medical information of their patient. So they will not use their own device. They will use the hospital device, which is more secured. They don't have to learn technology, but they do have to learn the risks in cybersecurity. What are the risks that uh, threaten our health? The risks may be non-interventions in terms of tapping the communication between devices or changing the properties of a device. Stealing information, disrupting information, disrupting the communication changing the credentials of a specific device, hacking to sensors that are monitoring location, movement, or medical condition. But when a hacker takes control of a transmission of a medical device, he can use it to control the robot. The hacker can control the robot even though the doctor says otherwise. It takes a millimeter to harm a patient. It can change the frequency of a pacemaker without the patient knowing. It can change the amount of insulin that a patient receives or adrenaline the patient receives because these devices are connected and they are all transmitting. A hacker that is taking control of a transmission can change it. How is the INCD protecting us or planning to protect us? Well, we are working closely with hospitals and the Ministry of Health to suggest new and improved procedures so hospitals and patients will know their devices. We are building a security model for next generation hospitals. We will build a prototype so we can test our model in a real life model. And we are looking for collaborations with manufacturers, with researchers and with Israeli startups that will have more knowledge and more research in cybersecurity of medical devices. Are we going to see a cyber attack on our health systems in the near future? And do you feel confident that we will deal with this attack properly? No one can predict the future in 100%. We are preparing ourselves to, uh, to an attack and we want to be as much as prepared as we can. 
We must remember that in the medical sector, we have doctors, we have the medical team, and they are human beings, and they can see what the medical device is doing, and they are monitoring it and protecting it and protecting the patients. So I'm confident that in working together and taking into consideration the whole ecosystem, we can be prepared and protected. Danit Leibovitz-Shati, thank you very much. Thank you, Ida. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.